0: Good evening. It's my honor this evening to introduce Joel Salatin. But first, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge Laura Parker. Um, She's been an incredible inspiration to work with on this. She's done more than any other student that I can think of at the school right now to push the issue of food. So join me in giving her a round of applause. (laughs) When we were talking this morning, Mr. Salatin said that he would be just as happy out running a chainsaw as talking to a bunch of people. (laughs) So we're lucky to have him here this evening. I first heard about grass farming in high school from some family friends. They were the kind of people who would put a hot tub in their hoop house for the winter, so I figured that grass farming must be a good idea, too. They mentioned the name Joel Salatin, and I promptly forgot it. Then this fall, my dad started bugging me. He'd been reading Michael Pollan's book, Omnivore's Dilemma, in which Mr. Salatin is prominently featured. He would get on the phone and say, you got to check this guy out. He's genius, this stuff about grass. And it's great. And these pigs, it's great. These pigs, they turn the manure, and so on. And I'd say, yeah, cool, Dad. You bet, I would say. <laughs> then Laura started forwarding me emails from Mr. Salatin. And all made sense. I quote, the divorce doctors continue pumping out pathogen-laden material to duplicitous populous paranoid of new viral strains. In his text on sustainable agriculture, John Vandermeer writes, the philosophy of industrial agriculture is akin to drawing a straight long line across a topographic map. Salatin had mastered the agriculture that follows contours. In a time when the little green and white USDA organic label means less and less, Salatin is pushing in the other direction. As industrial organic converts thousands of acres to laser leveled lettuce patches, Salatin demands that we focus our attention on small scale, the grass, the microorganisms in the soil, and in our stomachs. His family farm, Polyface Incorporated, has been featured in Smithsonian Magazine, National Geographic, Gourmet, and many others. Mother Earth News named him the most innovative farmer in the nation. Salatin writes prolifically for such magazines as Stockman Grass, Stockman Grass Farmer, Acres USA, and American Agriculturalist. He has authored five books, including Everything I Want to Do is Illegal, War Fronts from the Local Food Front. <laughs> Pushing local food is what Salatin has excelled at. Located in Virginia's Sedona Valley, Polyface Farm produces a phenomenal array of products. In his words, this success demonstrates that sustainable agriculture is not some rarefied niche business serving elite consumers, A viable way to keep family farms together while producing healthy food in harmony with the environment. Whether he is sleeping with his chickens, talking about stacked production with rabbits and worms and tilapia, or envisioning sweeping water collection systems, Salatin brings an extraordinary life and imagination to agriculture. Please join me in welcoming lunatic grass farmer Joel Salatin.
1: Thank you. It's really an honor and a joy to be here. Uh, this venue kind of takes my breath away. Isn't it beautiful? And the acoustics are awesome. I'm not sure I've ever spoken in a cathedral before, so <laughs> this is wonderful. But I've got a pulpit, so this is good. <laughs> you know, our, 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 our culture's um, uh, economy kind of started out with the agrarian economy. And then it moved to the industrial economy, and gave us World War II and the, um, you know, all the, the the factories and the concrete and the rebar that you could imagine, and factories, and became the uh, the merchant capital of the world. And um, this industrial paradigm became so consuming in our culture. And the simplification, specialization, routinization, mechanization of everything biological became such a part of our psyche that we even progressed to the point in our industrial melee that in the 1950s we decided that breastfeeding was Neanderthal and barbarian and we raised a generation of asthmatic sufferers on Infamil and Similac. And what happened was, as we entered the 60s, and the baby boomers came along and started questioning whether life is more than rebar and concrete and factories and time clocks. They brought us the new awareness, the desire for connectedness that came with the beaded, bearded, brawless, hippie, Woodstock, cosmic nirvana revolution, getting in touch with soul, with conviction, with heart, with passion, and who would have thought in the nineteen fifties that by the early nineteen seventies we would have Laleschi Leagues and Lamaze classes and you know and and, and men would accompany their, their wives to the birthing chamber, you know, I mean it's just amazing. And so what we're seeing today is the continued movement of the culture toward a soul desire to connect. Because, folks, for a generation We have been divorcing ourselves from our dinner dance partner. And the sole yearning of the American now is yearning for a partner, for dinner with a face, for a plate with a story. And the integrity, the romance... The intimacy that comes. You see, eating is one of the most intimate things we do. I mean, except for the act of marriage. I mean, in, in, uh, eating is one of the most intimate things that we do. I mean, we're actually taking food into our bodies. That's pretty, you know, close relationship. But when you when you divorce that. And when you say that food is just so many piles of inanimate structure protoplasmic metabolism, you know, that, that can be manipulated however the human mind can conceive to manipulate it, you take in something that you know not. There's no relationship. You know, it's like a one-night stand, like, you know, prostitution food. Like, it's, it's just sold to the, low, you know, the, 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 the highest bidder. And whoever the highest bidder is, you know, that's who you dance with tonight. But that doesn't satisfy the human spirit. And so we're looking for a partner. And that partner comes with knowledge and with a courtship and a romance that leads up to communion at the plate. And I would suggest that one of the strongest motives and reasons why we're here tonight is because we are interested in how to articulate, how to better find, and how to better um, consummate in our lives this re identification and this repartnering with a dance partner that lives, that moves, and that we know about to enjoy the integrity of a relationship that brings credibility, integrity, and depth to our thrice daily communion opportunity. So it's from that platform that I'm going to take you on a virtual visit of Polyface Farm and show you our story, the story that we tell to our 35 to 40 restaurant chefs, our 10 or so uh, retail venues, and the 2,000 families (laughs) who uh, buy our products. This is our story. Everybody's story is different. The adaptation to different areas of the country, different types of people, different types of climate will change somewhat. But the big principles are the same. The farm is Polyface Farm, uh, the farm of many faces. We're not just two-faced, we're many-faced. And it's on the edge of Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, which, if you remember, was the breadbasket of the Confederacy during the War of Northern Aggression. Or the great wall, as they say. And, oh, the confederacy brings the bells. Isn't that wonderful? So we believe that God's laid down certain principles that are all interconnected. See, one of our problems today in our culture is that we are a decided, uh, a, a great, 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 great grandchild of Greco-Roman, Western, reductionist, linear, systematized, fragmented it's-all-about-me type of thinking. And I would suggest to you that there is an equally appropriate tradition from other parts of the country, and that's the Eastern holistic connectedness we're all relatives, it's about us, tradition. And the problem is that if all we are is one or the other, The one has no mind, the other one has no soul. And so if we combine the two and take the best of both traditions, we'll probably come up with a better approach. And so um, as we we put these holes together, we'll we'll break them apart and we'll put them together as we go through. The farm is 550 acres, 100 acres open, 450 in woodland. And if you go from the left of the screen and move to the right, you see field, forest, there's a creek there, field, forest ponds up that hollow, field, forest, ponds up that hollow, and fields. The three great environments are open land, forest land, and water. And the more we can intersect those environments, the more diversity there will be on the landscape. Whether it's a condominium window box or a 100,000 acre Colorado ranch, the more diversity, the more intersecting riparian forestal open zones we have, the more stable that ecosystem will be. Now, you know, when everything is a circle, it's hard to know where to break in. So we'll start with the woods and we'll go progressively through the animals and all that. So, you know, we start with the woods. The woods are important. The forest is important for hydrologic reasons as as, as pumps. Uh, trees foster hydrologic cycling. They're important for aesthetic reasons, for wildlife reasons, for uh, lumber, for building materials, um, carbon sinks, all those kinds of things. But... Just so you know where my pigeonhole is, let me just be very transparent with you so you you can get me pegged. You know, this is the year of the elections, and so it's important to peg everybody. So I'm a Christian libertarian environmentalist capitalist. (laughs) And the capitalist part of me says, well, how do we create... A desire for stewardship of the of the forest. How do we how do we make these trees stewarded? Well, we make them stewarded by making them valuable. How do we make them valuable? Well, we we value add them. We we make them we make them valuable. They're not valuable just of themselves necessarily. We make them valuable, and so we sell firewood from the farm. We also take the saw logs out with our multiple use equipment and um, bring them down to the bandsaw mill. So we have an on site uh, uh, bandsaw mill that you know, um, we can turn these into lumber. The value-added difference in commodity lumber is the farthest, is the greatest ratio of any commodity worldwide. What you sell for $100 off the stump sells for $1,000 at Lowe's and Home Depot. So that's a, you know, a huge percentage increase. And so what we want to do is become a price maker instead of a price taker. You see people all over the country, they sell their wood, they sell their lumber, and they go down to the sawmill. Somebody comes out from the scale house with a little measuring stick and tells you how much you have, how good it is, and what the price is. I don't know about you, but for me, that doesn't sound like I'm negotiating from a position of strength. And so by taking these logs and turning them into boards that we can sell to neighbors or use for our own building projects, we suddenly create Tremendous value, and guess what? Then we don't want the cows to run through them. We want to protect them, and we want to uh, actually increase the, uh, the quality of the woodlot. Now, the branches we stack, run them through the chipper. Dad always com- called this our communist machine because it makes them all the same size. <laughs> and then those chips become the carbonaceous base- basis in the hay shed during the wintertime feeding period. See, those cows are dropping 50 pounds of material out their back end every day. I've often thought, boy, that's pretty cool. You know, a cow, he's 28 pounds of hay, gives me 50 pounds of goodies out her back end. Who says a perpetual motion machine hasn't been invented? (laughs) But the problem is that that material is very easy to leach into the groundwater or vaporize into the air. The problem is to keep all of those volatile nutrients in place and not have them, you know, Pull a hate snow and leave, and so um, the the wood chips bond with those nutrients that the cows are dropping. So here you can see the you can see the bedding build up. Okay, the hay here, and so uh, we can just drop the hay right in the hay gate, and we can go back to the house and read our uh, Colorado College Quarterly. Uh, it, you know, it makes a great quality of life because we're not having to see how cold we can still start a diesel engine and move the hay out to the field, that sort of thing. Um, So you just see a very simple awning there. And you can see how it builds up. See, here's ground level. There's the, you know, there's the, uh, it's four feet deep. And so this bedding just continues to build up. And the cows tromp out the oxygen so it is anaerobic. It is fermenting. So as this builds, we just keep lifting the feeder gate. And you notice they're eating through a feeder gate that's cantilevered so they can't back up to it and poop into the, you know, table that they're eating, the, 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 plate. A lot of people say, you know, these organic farmers, I mean, you know, it's just where the, you know, the men grow ponytails and run naked through the woods on moonlit nights and the women don't shave her legs and everybody just kind of sits back and lets nature take its course. Well, (laughs) if you're not going to do the things that make the meats, that, 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 give the animals uh, pathogens and parasites where you have to use, you know, IVAMEC to to make the meat so bad it kills all the bugs, you have to institute positive modeling. You can't just say no, no, no all the time. You've got to say yes once in a while. And so this is a hygienic uh a conducive feeding system to make sure the cows are clean and their plate is clean all the time. So then we add corn to that bedding. The cows tromp it all in there, and the corn, because it's in an anaerobic condition in the fermenting bedding, it ferments in that bedding pack. And then, so in this, in, when the cows come out in the spring, we've got this deep bedding pack that's all fermented, okay? There's no odor. It's, it's just a wonderful, you know, uh, Fermenting material there with all those nutrients all locked up in the carbon. And then we turn in the piggerators. And the piggerators then go for that fermented corn. You better watch out. It's coming right at you. And they, like big egg beaters, they go in and stir it and oxygenate it, aerate it. You know, air pig aerator like aerobics, you know, like... Jane Fonda aerobics, you know, left, 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 always left, left, left. So, <laughs> so you've got these, so you've got these pigorators in here, um, fully expressing their pigness. You see, what we want to do at Polyface is to provide each animal. With a habitat that allows it to fully express its physiological distinctiveness. So that a pig can express its pigness, a chicken or chickenness, cow it's cowness, tomato it's tomateness. See, in industrial agriculture, we don't have moral and ethical parameters. We don't care if a pig can, can express its pigness or not. The only question that industrial agriculture asks is can we grow it fatter, faster, bigger, cheaper? It's the only question, and yet all of us intuitively know that if fatter, faster, bigger, cheaper were really a noble goal, we'd all aspire to be the fattest guy in a room. I mean, that's why that's why uh, the average NFL player dies at fifty-seven. They're all freaks of nature. You know, when your neck is bigger than your head, you know you're a freak. And nature tends to weed out freaks. I mean, there's a reason why an elephant is the size an elephant is and a mouse is the size that a mouse is. An elephant the size of a mouse wouldn't be a very successful elephant and a mouse the size of an elephant wouldn't be a very successful mouse. And so what happens is nature tends to move things to balance and the extremes tend to get weeded out. And so... Here's the deal. When we allow, when we provide a habitat that allows the pig to fully express its pigness, it's the happiest, makes the best pork chops. And here's the thing. It respects and honors the distinctiveness of the pig. And I would suggest to you that a culture that only views a pig irreverently, as a pile of protoplasmic molecular structure to be manipulated, however, the clever human mind can conceive to manipulate it, will also disrespect its citizens and even other cultures. Gets <laughs> pretty heavy, doesn't it? And so there is a sacredness. There is a bigger picture. There is, eating is a conscious act. Because how we choose to respect the least of these creates a moral, ethical, philosophical foundation for how we will then treat and respect the greatest of these. And if we will not respect the least of these, we will not respect the greatest of these. And so we want those pigs to express their pigness. And the neat thing about this is, they don't need their oil changed. You know, they don't need minimum wage. They don't need petroleum to run on. You don't have to sit there and steer them. You know, we can go. We can go read the uh, college quarterly. You know, and the pigs are out there working. We don't even have to have a you know a, a lieutenant to tell them what to do. Okay, and they love to do this. They're fully equipped with a plow on the end of their nose. And so they do all of this piggerating for us, and then we can bring the compost out and put it in the fields. Now, (laughs) the reason we do this is because that's what our cow pies look like. Now, I don't know how yours come out, but this is the way ours come out. And our problem in America is we've called these things uh, waste instead of black gold. We call our soil dirt. See, The weak link in our food system is not that we don't know how and we don't know what, it is that we don't have we we don't have enough creativity in our ears, between our ears. Our weak link is always between our ears. Okay? And so um, we need to appreciate that it's the use of the resource and it's the management of the resource and it's the it's the it's the stewardship of that resource. That creates the difference in, the, in, whether it's, in whether the farming practice or the food system is positive or negative. And then when the compost comes out, then we can put in chickens. And we can run poultry netting around there. If you're going to have infrastructure, let's run different animals through it. And let's use it all year round. And so then we run chickens through that. We raise a lot of ready-to-lay pullets for all of the urban Dilbert cubicle refugees that are fleeing their cubicle at the end of the expressway looking for their farm residential estate, you know. And they want some backyard chickens. And so we, you know, sell them $10,000 worth of chickens every year uh, as they flee to the countryside. You know, now our neighbors view all these urban refugees as a great big liability. Ah, these people, Because you know, a lot of people around our area, they're coming from up north, you know. That's a big problem. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they made their money in e-commerce, you know, the e-boom, whatever. And uh, so they come down and they buy these McMansions and put them up. Okay, you know, we don't need to be in a big debate about that. But the fact is, they are moving into the area. And so we can either view them with disdain and you know, drive by them on the road or we can embrace them and pick their pocket. (laughs) You see, you can't get close. You got to get close to a person before you can pick their pocket. And so we kind of embrace them and pick their pocket and just enjoy them as they come. Um, and then, of course, you can have pigs in there if you want to. But the point is you use the facility for other things. Now, when they're done with that, they go out into the pig pastures. And so every every few days they move to another pig pasture. We use local GMO-free, uh, no genetically modified organisms, local grain. Uh, for the grain component, these are omnivores. They're not herb- herbivores. So pigs and poultry do need some, you know, some grain, not herbivores. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then... Uh, they get all of the green salad bar they want. So the secret to this is the constant movement onto fresh grass. And that way the pigs get to choose. We trust the pigs to choose whether or not they want some salad or they want some um, grain. You know, they, they, get to, they get to make that choice. And they get to the fresh air, exercise, and sunshine. And um, what this does over time is create this beautiful landscape uh, using pigs as a management tool to move Vegetative succession forward. Now we go to the open open land management. Here we're trying to simply duplicate the perennial polyculture of the prairie. We don't want monocultures. You know, nature spends a lot of time militating against uh, monocultures. That's what weeds are in your garden, that sort of thing. And so we want to have a polyculture, a a prairie perennial polyculture. So that's the way prairies and perennial pastures were. You know, were. came along for a long time, and they came along with herbivores. Now, cows, again, can either be landscape negative or landscape positive. It's up to the management of them that determines whether they're landscape positive or landscape management. So we look at herbivores in nature. We say, well, well, how did these herbivores build these beautiful, deep, black soils in Iowa and on the Serengeti? And, and, you know, what what are the principles that we see there? Well, there are basically three principles. And I'll alliterate them so you can remember them. Okay, the first one is that they're always mobbed up. You know, you don't see them all spread out over the over the the expanse. You know, they're they're mobbed up in a tight group. Why are they mobbed up? Predator protection. You know, because they're wolves or lions or coyotes or whatever over in the bushes. So they mob up for predator protection. Well, that mobbing does an amazing thing. It has it has an effect both in how they move across the landscape, they move with more reckless abandon. They're not as picky the way they step around the little tufts. So they, they step on everything. And so they pound the, the lignified carbon into the soil surface so the earthworms and the gibberellins and the azotobacter can reach it and, and, and metabolize it into a decomposition uh, digestion process. Or they eat it, but at least it's pushed onto the soil surface. The other thing that it does is it makes them eat very aggressively. And when they eat very aggressively, they tend to spend more time ruminating. And they only make meat or milk when they're ruminating. And so this tends to help them to maximize their rumination time. Cows that are just out in a field, you know, continuous uh, willy-nilly grazing, they become very lethargic grazers. So so this, this really helps them to perform better. Now that so mobbing is the first thing. The second thing is they're always moving. They don't stay in the same field. They move away from yesterday's excrement. And they're and they're moving on to fresh ground, a fresh salad bar every day. They're, they're, they're moving forward. They don't, they don't stay in the same campsite. They, they move away from pathogens, they move away from their manure, and they move toward fresh forage, a fresh salad bar. And the third thing is they're mowing. You know, they're not eating dead cows. They're not eating chicken manure and dead chickens like we're still feeding in this country. They're eating, and they're not eating grain. They're not eating silage. They're eating grass, herbivorous grass. You know, people ask me, what do you do for a living? I say, we're in the mob-stocking, herbivorous solar conversion, lignified carbon sequestration, fertilization process. <laughs> You want me to hear you do that again? All right. We're in the mob stocking, herbivorous, solar, conversion, lignified carbon sequestration, fertilization process. Okay? (laughs) You see, for 40 years, the U.S., duh... has wined and dined farmers like me at uh, Texas Steakhouse and out back in Ponderosa teaching us of this new scientific method. It's called, you know, you take dead cows, you put them through a 12-foot auger, you grind them up, you cook them, and you, you, you clean up the, the precipitate residue in the bottom of the cookery jar, and you put it in feed, and you feed it to the cows. And this is a new scientific method. Well, it's 40 years later, and there's this great big, you know, sucking in of air and this collective, oops, maybe we shouldn't ought have done that. And we now have, of course, you know, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. If you want to sound educated, learn how to say that. Big mistake. But I hope it shows you that science is not objective. Science is subjective because the experiments are always set up without all the variables because you can't set up a Western linear reductionist compartmentalized fragmented Greco-Roman experiment that accounts for all the variables. And so there are always prejudices coming to the scientific experiment. Yeah, they did the experiment, but they couldn't see 40 years down the road. And they didn't know about rogue prions. But some of us, like us, looked at that research and said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Herbivores don't eat dead cows. <laughs> and that's why I push the moral, ethical, philosophical why of all this, is because we have become a culture of technicians. We've become extremely good at how to. What would well, we become very bad at why? And so it's important for us to get the philosophy down, the morality of it down, the ethics of it down. Because that is what will protect us from the mad scientists who move forward with an agenda often padded by you know, corporate interests that pay for the initial research. That use it to push some sort of agen- an agenda. There's always an agenda. And so we want these herbivores to be treated like herbivores. And so we move them every day to a fresh salad bar. And so we're mimicking, we're, we're mimicking that mobbing, moving, mowing paradigm of nature. Essentially, we're looking at nature saying, how does nature and prairie, how did these herbivores and prairie build soil? And we're taking that, that looking at those patterns and taking it like a scissors and cutting out like a template, taking that template and laying it down on a commercial domestic production model and saying, how can we most closely approximate that model? And whatever that model is, that's what we do. And it uh, do- doesn't matter you know, whether Wall Street falls or or increases or whatever. The point is, we want to mimic that nature. So the infrastructure is electric fence. You know, now my neighbors think that this moving cows thing is just is just ridiculous. I mean, the thought of moving a herd of cows every day is just crazy. But when you say move cows to them, you know, they're thinking three four-wheelers, two pickup trucks, a couple dogs, three cans of skull snuff, and a lot of spitting and cussing, and they probably still didn't get them all because there's still five old ornery ones stuck back in the brush. That's the way they talk, you know, down in the south. Is out down in the British. You can get dictionaries on how to talk Southern. You know, you don't put a ladder up against the wall; you put it up against the wall. So, so when we go out and move them, we just call them, and they just follow us into the next um, paddock. Here we are in the middle of February with eighty dry cows on half an acre a day. Okay, very, very intensive. This is a rental ground. We rent three farms in addition to our own. All these have come to us, people wanting us to heal their farms like they've seen us do to ours. All it is is solar energy, cows, a little bit of electric fence, some polyethylene water line, and there you are. And what this has done is in Augusta County, our average cow days per acre is, is 80 cow days per acre. A cow day is what one cow will eat in one day. And we have not planted a seed, We own no plow, no disc, haven't bought a bag of chemical fertilizer in 50 years, and we're averaging 400 cow days per acre. Okay? (laughs) So these systems work, and when the, and when the genetic engineers make front page headlines on the Wall Street Journal because they've, they've done something that, that gives us a a 2% kick, I'm saying, big whoop, I can give you a 300% kick. And it doesn't have to come out of a lab anywhere. All it is, is humbly coming to nature and recognizing that that template works best. It's just water, water. Simple fencing, notice the light footprint. You know, this is the infrastructure, that's it. That's all you see. You know, if you're driving by at 60 miles an hour, you'd never even know it was there. Now those cows like to lounge under trees, which become patho- you know, um, incubators for pathogens and parasites and, and uh, you know, fertility transfer. So we have a thousand square foot portable loafing shelter that moves around the cows shade up under it. So it allows us to move the, you know, move the manure with the cows. They get a clean place to lounge every day. Now water becomes a critical factor. So we've built a lot of ponds over the years. And um, we fenced the ponds out so the cows can't get into them. Notice the riparian edge. Notice the clean water. Notice the cattails and the sumac and the... um persimmon trees and all the hydrologic trees that grow up around it and we can you know pump out of those ponds we also gravity feed we have you know uh, some elevation on the farm so we can gravity feed this is 80 psi water coming from a mile away all gravity fed you know this is the kind of infrastructure that you do it's not that we don't spend any money we just like to spend it on infrastructure that lasts for 500 years okay that's pretty fun and then, of course, you can use it for irrigation as well in the drought to keep green grass and, and keep and keep solar energy being converted to biomass. See, that's the whole. That's all. This is is trying to maintain very vibrant photosynthetic activity to metabolize more solar energy into carbonaceous material that can either go through the cow and come out in the manure for digestion, or can go into the soil and feed all the soil uh, biotic life in order to grow more perennial photosynthetic plants to do the cycle again, all right? That's, that's what this is all about. Now, those cows drop a calling card. You say, hmm, well, I wonder how nature sanitizes behind these herbivores, you know, before um, Merck Pharmaceuticals and Johnson & Johnson came along to shoot the cows up with all sorts of strange things to keep the pathogens away. How did nature sanitize? Well, it did it with, uh, with birds, you know, the egret on the rhino's nose, the symbiotic relationship between birds and, um, and, and herbivores. So we have the eggmobiles. This is 900 uh, chickens that free range out from the eggmobiles. We move them a couple days behind the cows. The chickens scratch through the cow patties, eat out the fly larva, turn that into eggs, scratch the cow patty into the soil surface, spread it all around so it covers a lot more area, simulates nutrient cycling, and lay $20,000 worth of eggs as a byproduct of the pasture sanitation program. So what you're doing is you're taking what normally would be a waste and a problem, a liability, and and letting that be the beginning of the next circle to create another income producer and another um, uh, ecological part of that chain. It's so so the, chain, the, the chain is just looped and it just links along. And the beauty of this is, of course, this is, this is the kind of work, I mean, gathering eggs, things like that, that's that's the kind of work children can do. It's, it's very, it's very uh, conducive to multi-family, multi-physic um, uh, uh, levels of people. Now, commercial egg production? These are um, portable hoop houses chained together. This is a thousand birds. This is real techno-glitzy um, uh, poultry netting here. It's uh, it's got a spark running through it. It's a polyethylene. A lot of things had to converge. You know, I'm not a Luddite. I love. I mean, this kind of technology with the hoop structures and this uh, electrified polyethylene netting that uh, keeps out bears and coyotes and foxes and. Uh, badgers and keeps the chickens in, I mean, who would have thought eighty years ago that you could have one hundred and fifty feet of that impregnable offense, not offense but a fence okay <laughs> that one person could take up and put down in fifteen minutes and it only weighed twelve pounds as they say, who the funk all right so it 's really cool I mean. Folks, we're living in the most incredible age because for the first time in human history, we can produce commercial-scale, pasture-based production um, products more environmentally friendly, animal-friendly, hygienic, and sanitary than you could a stationary backyard flock on an American homestead 80 years ago. Isn't that cool? Sure it's cool. Okay? Okay. And so it's not that we don't use the technology, but the technology we use is to enhance the life of of the chicken to express her chickenness. See, that's what it's used for. And as soon as we use that technology to override, to adulterate, to prostitute the biological, we have exceeded the ethical moral dimension, the constraint. And we have actually innovated beyond our ability to ethically or morally metabolize what what we've innovated. You see, we can innovate past our headlights. You ever seen the movie Jurassic Park? You know, and the raptors, you know, they're eating people and, you know, the whole the civilization, as we know it, is going to be destroyed. And the scientist is euphoric over his great, you know, great uh, experiment and his uh, contribution to everything. And the journalist gets in his face and has the unmitigated gall to ask him, but sir, just because we can, should we? That's a pregnant question. And one that we should all ask, just because we can, should we? You know, just because we can organic certify cut flowers from Lima, Peru, and air freight them overnight in refrigerated vessels on jets to be sold in San Francisco boutiques, should we? Just because we can put chicken in a Chinese merchant vessel bilge and ship it two months across the ocean... And undersell, um, American product by two cents a pound. Should we? See, these are, these are valid questions. And so this allows us to, the whole thing just moves right along. In the winter, they come into hoop houses. So you've got rabbits up to the left, you've got chickens in there, and then you can add pigs. So you've got pigs and chickens and rabbits, and you've got all this multispeciated, diversified dimension in the structure. None of the animals of the single animals is at a density that kicks in pathogenicity because the infrastructure doesn't have to be paid for by one species, it's paid for by the cumulative effect of all the species working in symbiosis. And what this does is it creates pathogenic cul de sacs. You see, here's the way the real world the real world works. Um you know, <clears throat> Harry and Matilda are uh, rabbit pathogens. Harriet and Matilda, you know, they hatch out in a little rabbit, you know, turd that, that drops on the floor here, and uh, so they hatch out and they start looking for a, you know, for a new home. And um, <clears throat> remember, you know, this 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 microbiological world is is um, you know a, a centimeter is like going from California to the, to um, you know Philadelphia, and so they spy this. Um, You know, they look on a road map and say, wow, I think it'd be great to settle in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And so they start across the country, you know, the centimeter, uh, move across the country. And they, and they get to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, that far hill that they saw only to find to their great dismay that it's a chicken turd and they can't live there. So they die. You know, her biological clock runs out and, you know, it's over. And that's the way the multispeciation and the pathogen cul-de-sacs occur in a, in, 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 a facility like this. You see, you can, you can eliminate pathogenicity by having two 21-day host-free rest periods a year and or by creating the multispeciation course you know we can take a break in the you know as soon as the spring rolls around they're only in there for four months and then in the spring they come out and we can grow tomatoes in there we can grow thousands of dollars worth of vegetables as a byproduct of the winter uh, hoop house for the poultry and the rabbits and, and the pigs so um, you know, that's the way it works and then the, you know, we do an apprentice program here's turkeys under vineyard you got the grapevines growing up shading the turkeys the turkeys side dress, debug, fertilize you know, so you've got this stacking again You've got you, so you can spread out the vineyard because the infrastructure doesn't have to be paid for with one plant this is the rackin house, rabbits up above chickens underneath the the chickens keep it going with the rabbit you know, you, you can do this In the middle of a city. I mean, this could be done right down in, uh, you know, below the president's house. Um, (laughs) I mean, folks, this is a this this is a this is a a two car garage basically that grosses nine thousand dollars and nets four thousand dollars a year in a two car garage. And if you get rid of the roosters, there's no noise. (laughs) You know, you could set it in amongst the trees. Nobody will ever know about it. Uh, If you don't like chickens underneath, then you have pigs underneath. It's the same idea, but we're always looking at how can we create synergistic, symbiotic relationships. Because in nature, one of nature's templates is always about creating more and more relationships. You see, industrial doesn't want any relationships. It's all about everything being just like me. As opposed to a community of relationships. And that's a that's a, a, an important natural principle. So here's the hairpin. So the rabbits go into this little slatted floor um, field pen. We move it, you know, up the up the field. It makes a hairpin turn, comes back. Um, <laughs> we do seminars as well. Here's our son Daniel teaching folks how to, you know, dress a rabbit. It's all there. Then we go to poultry. They come in at one day old little balls of fluff and then go out in the field at about uh, 15 to 16 days into floorless portable. Uh, Chicken shelters that we move every day to a fresh salad bar, again, high density, short duration. You notice where they vacated, no dirt, no bare ground. We don't ever want to see animals on bare ground, ever. Because when there's bare ground, there's no decomposition. And decomposition is the way nature sanitizes uh, sanitizes behind animals. So the birds get the grass, the fresh air, the sunshine, and GMO-free local grain um, to eat, then you go to turkeys. You know, turkeys are like 10 speeds instead of spider bikes, you know, so they need a lot more room. So they're in this same kind of poultry netting. Uh, their shelter is called the gobbledygo. <laughs> and uh, the gobbledygo is uh, 30 feet by 50 feet. And we just move it right along. You notice here where the where the turkeys vacated. Here's the new ground where they've just been. Again, there's no dirt. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Folks... God gave us our senses for a reason. You know, when when you've got a wound and it starts to stink, you say, I got a problem, right? And there's got to be some healing. Well, folks, we've created a stinky food system. And a food system that is proper will be aesthetically and aromatically pleasant. And if it's not... If it if it doesn't romance people to be a part of it to be um, aromatically and aesthetically pleasant, it's not good food. And here again, what's happened is, in the in the industrialization of our food, we have disconnected. We have we have made an anti-human food production paradigm that nobody wants to be a part of, and so we have sequestered out to yon hills. You know, the, the pig factories and the chicken factories and the processing facilities and all that. And whenever we we take the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker and take them outside the village over the hill unseen, they will start taking shortcuts. And they will start taking social shortcuts, economic shortcuts, environmental shortcuts, nutritional shortcuts. So the only way to create a truly Food secure system is to reinsert, re embed the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker in our villages, in our towns, so that there is transparency, so that everybody sees what goes in the front door and what comes out the back door. And with the transparency will come integrity. Integrity cannot be legislated, it cannot be regulated. And it certainly doesn't come from inside the beltway. So the beauty of these systems is that they're child-friendly. And, the, and, and children can be a part of it from day one. And so the children can grow up being team players. We don't have to push them aside and push them aside and say, well, someday, 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 because we're afraid they're going to fall into the manure lagoon or off the bankruptcy tube, you know, silo. Uh, none of those things. The, 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 kids, the kids can be a part of it. So they can grow up uh, actually being, being meaningful team members on a place that they can be proud to bring their friends to and not have to apologize for the odors and the smell and the fecal particulate contamination floating around in the air. So it's neighbor-friendly. And again, it can be re, reinserted right into villages. So all this is, is a big dance. And I'm just a choreographer making sure all the animals are fulfilling the right, the right place at the right time. And they do all the work. And then we bring them into the open or air uh, processing facility, of course, which the government has tried to shut down for many, many years. And we just uh, keep coming back, kind of like a bad dream. But... Um, you know the chickens don't have to go up the interstate and fling feathers all over the place. Uh, they stay right there. Our chickens leave, you know, with their clothes off, and, um, and 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 logistically, you know, they've come right from the field right here to processing. And um, we had our we had our skin cultured at a microbiology lab uh, nearby. The average chicken in the supermarket cultured an average of 3,600 colony-forming units of bacteria per milliliter to the second permutation, and there are people in here that understand that, believe it or not, and ours averaged 133. And yet the state says that we're not clean because we don't have walls and bathrooms and changing lockers and... All the other paraphernalia that goes with an a government approved system. Uh, good topic. Um, <laughs> the reason, the main reason that local food and especially local value added food is so hard to get, is because of um, is because of regulations that were written because of industrial shortcuts that are being applied to cottage-sized kitchens in our communities. And um, that's a battle we will have to continue to wage. So it gives us a chicken that's unbelievable in the world. We compost all the guts right there on site and use that as fertilizer um, right there on the farm. We don't feed the guts back to the chickens like the industry does and wonder, duh, why are the chickens getting sick all the time? And then when it's over, it's over, and I can come to Colorado and visit with you in the wintertime. So that's one of the beauties of this kind of farming. It does appreciate the seasons. There is an ebb and a flow, and a sprint time and a relaxed time that creates emotional regeneration times, um, so that we can think and plan and actually um, and actually recuperate for the next season. What we've done is created a very antagonistic food system. So we have stop, do not enter, restricted, absolutely no visitor access to our industrial farms. What this really says is, uh, folks, we've got so many chickens crammed into such tight quarters breathing fecal particulate air all the time that their immune system is so compromised we can't let anybody come on here because you might make them sick. I mean, this is called biosecurity in the media. I call this immunodeficiency. So what we want to do is throw open the gates... And let people come to the farm, build a, build a relationship with their food, meet the farmer, rediscover their dance partner, and develop a communion at the dinner plate. Walk to the farm, touch, feel, sense, smell, and court their dinner partner. So that when they dine, they will have all of the sensual joy and the emotional satisfaction of a partner from a state of knowledge and and, uh, and enjoyment. So they build their memories. We, uh, we encourage people to come out to the farm. We do a lot of farm tours. Um, July 12th this year we'll have our National Field Day. We do that once every three years. All the barbecued chicken, beef, and pork you can eat. It's worth coming just for the food. And... Um, so, you know, you're welcome to come. We're expecting about 2,000 people. Um, so we do this, you know, uh, along. We have, we have a lot of folks come. We do, um, you know, food fairs, uh, take food places. One of the favorite things we do at food-type fairs or career fairs or health fairs is we'll cook, you know, little uh, sausages and um, give them uh, to the children of vegetarians. <laughs> We love vegetarians, we really do. Because once they find out they can heal the planet with this kind of agriculture, then it takes the guilt off and they can, and, and, and they have to binge to make up for lost time. So. <laughs> We do metropolitan buying clubs where we go uh, up to, you know, uh, metropolitan areas on a schedule. We collaborate with other farmers in the area, distributing to uh, restaurant chefs who we bring out, uh, try to do it once a year, bring them out for a chef appreciation dinner, again, to give them knowledge, to, 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 to help them understand their partner and increase their story that they can then tell to, to their folks, and build the kind of uh, farm that will romance the next generation into it. But you know what? You Just have a bad day sometimes. I mean, things just don't go very well. Okay. And and the thing is, if you'll just if we just continue, you know, sometimes it just looks insurmountable that that like. CC can locally source food. All right, sometimes it just seems impossible. And we we make steps forward and we make steps backward. But if we will just continue to pursue the righteous path, the high moral road, the high ethical road, I'm here to tell you that the blessings will come. We will make, we will punch through and we will get to the system with integrity that that actually makes earthworms dance. and that makes and that brings integrity to our dinner plate not just for us but for our children and our children's children as the 4-H motto says for my community, my country and my world. Thanks for taking the sit down tour of Polyface Incorporated come to see us sometime. Thank you very much